It's Monday, October 23rd, 2017. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 135 of the 5049 Podcast. How you guys doing? You all right? It's episode 135, and I'm very happy to say that for episode 135, I am joined by guitarist, composer, band member, recording engineer, philosopher, and just all-around good dude, Patrick Higgins. That fucked up music you hear back there? That's Patrick's new duo record with violinist Josh Modney. Let's have a listen. You know, just the standard uh, violin and guitar duo. Today on the show, Patrick Higgins. Before we get started, um, I want to apologize uh, for something in last week's episode. Um, I didn't realize it until after the the episode went up and went live that there were some audio problems. Uh, nothing too pervasive, but I think towards the end there, my mic cut out a little bit and... Uh, Fortunately, it wasn't Thomas' mic that cut out. It was mine. Um, but that sucks. But that's kind of what happens when it's a one-man show. You know, I normally don't wear headphones during these conversations, uh, despite the fact that I'm also recording them, because uh, it kind of takes me out of the conversation, and and sometimes, uh, you know, I'm unable to catch things that should be caught. So I'm sorry about that. I, I changed out all the cables, so we should be good going forward. Today on the show, Patrick Higgins. Listen, um, I played a show with Patrick about two or three weeks ago. Um, We weren't playing together. We were on the same bill. And Patrick played a solo set, um, which I presumed, you know, when I asked him to play, uh, that as a guitarist, he would be playing the guitar, you know, probably through some pedals into an amp. Um, And he showed up with a guitar, and he showed up with some pedals, as well as a laptop, and... I don't remember the last time this had happened. He played music uh, that I had no context for. It's really surreal to be sitting there watching someone playing music. You, you see them. They have an instrument. But the sound and the music is completely unlike anything you've ever heard and seemingly not possible to come from the instrument that you're watching the person play. It's a great moment. I've only had that uh, experience a couple of times, and it's certainly been a long time, where you you just have no no idea, no context for what you're about to hear and observe, and it's refreshing. Some of you probably know Patrick for his work in the band Z's. He plays guitar in Z's, uh, which, despite uh, several lineup changes throughout the years, has had a pretty fixed membership for the last few years. It's uh, Patrick. Sam Hilmer on sax, and Greg Fox, uh, who you might remember from an episode of this show uh, last year, uh, on drums. But Patrick stays incredibly busy uh, across many different platforms. He is prolific as a composer. Um, He's got a new record of string quartets coming out, and he's already got one record of string quartets out. He does a lot of solo work. He just put out a duo record with the great violinist Josh Modney. He stays busy. He's also a pretty spectacular recording engineer. 
He's got a studio up in Hudson. It's called Future Past. A lot of great records have come out of that studio. On top of all that, he's just a he's a fun dude. Um, this conversation is the first time we ever really talked, uh, and it was a great hang. It really was. Uh, we extended the hang for a bit after I turned the mics off, and uh, I, I enjoy Patrick. I enjoy him quite a lot. Uh, he's just a wonderful musician. He's hilarious. He's a great dude to hang out with. And if you want to find out more about him, go to patrickhigginsmusic.com. PatrickHigginsMusic.com. Well worth your attention. Check them out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please do uh, a couple things. Tell your friends about it. Whether that's in person or social media, that helps. The end of the day, word of mouth is how these things work. And uh, do me the flavor. Put the word out. If you want to go one step beyond, uh, maybe consider throwing in a few bucks. Got a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash 5049 podcast. You can pledge a monthly amount and um, it really helps. So do that. And that's it. Here's my conversation with Patrick Higgins. Yeah, yeah, from like crazy studio. Uh, yeah, come visit, man. Yeah, Definitely. no, I want to come to a session there. I just like, I don't know, man. Do you like you own that studio? Yeah, yeah. How did that? How did that happen? Crazy story, man. I I was like, I never really was planning to leave Manhattan. You know what I mean? And I had like uh, never really, never really like had any money, but like did pretty well on this film I had scored a few years ago, and was like, oh shit, I could like put a down payment on some shit but yeah yeah so i was like oh so i was just looking at apartments you know right but down here it was like we pay a million dollars for like a shit box on avenue a you know what i mean like this literally fuck you man yeah yeah yeah. so i was just looking upstate and randomly this fucking huge church was on the market that like used to be this dope studio that henry hirsch built and he was like retiring and i was like whoa so then I just hustled for like eight months and found like financing and a really people to back me and like got this crazy mortgage and it was like fuck it man let's go for it and, and that's in Hudson yeah. yeah how do you like Hudson you know I like it fine I guess it's like um it's a cool place to work right there's a there's it's like any other place man there's, it's kind of is it not getting like overrun with like Brooklyn expats who yeah it's overrun with that and it's overrun more with like the like aspirational hamptonians you know what i'm saying like really? yeah it's it's like getting, yeah it's getting like weekend rich antiques yeah they and like the antiques and like just like the lu- luxury industries like positive, yeah. like fucking right fa- fa- fancy food fancy Fishing game but you're not you're not from upstate no no i'm from manhattan you're yeah. from new york yeah. yeah like born and raised yeah yeah, that, I had no up, idea. Upper West Side, yeah. What street? 120th in Amsterdam. Way up. You're like from Columbia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Wait, that, yeah, that's man. fucking crazy. So let me think about this for a second. Yeah. That means that, so you're in Z's. Yeah. And Greg's from the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. Charlie was from, from the Upper East Upper East Side. Side, yeah, yeah. Benny Greenberg is from the Upper West Side. Uh, the Bronx, Chelsea. Okay. Yeah. 
So he's like a, actually like a real New York band. Real New York band. I don't yeah. think I knew that. Yeah, and Hilmer. I mean, Sam Hilmer's from D.C., but he's lived here 20 years now. So he's yeah. official. He's official New Yorker. You know, man, I had no idea. I, I've never really. I don't know why that just occurred to me, but that's kind of interesting. Yeah, that it's like a real. It's a real New York band. It's a real New York band. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. <laughs> Did you know those guys, any of those guys growing up? No, no, actually, I um, I got to know them in college. At yeah. where did you go? At Columbia. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fucking crazy, right? Funny, Wait, yeah. did uh, what's his name went there? Uh, Hunter Hunt Hendricks. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. We yeah. were we were in the same department. He was a year below me, but we were uh, in the philosophy department together. Really? Yeah. And so did Hank Steamer went there too. I don't know if you know Hank. I know Hank. Yeah. yeah. We, but he's a little bit older. Than he you. was older. Yeah. We yeah, missed yeah, yeah. him, but yeah. But wait, you and did you and Hunter know each other there? Yeah, we were friends. We were friends in college. Yeah. I man, this is all kind of like piecing together in a way that I didn't I didn't really know. I need to get in touch with that dude. His I found out way after the fact. His dad saved my marriage. No shit. Amazing. Do you know who his dad is? No. I don't know if no. I should talk about it. Fuck it, I'll keep it. In. He, I'm sure. His dad is like a notable uh, like notable author and marriage counselor. Amazing. And Amazing. my wife and I, when we got separated, like the the type of therapy that his father has literally like uh, designed is like the therapy that saved our marriage. Incredible. Yeah. That's great, man. <laughs> That's great. Nice connection. <laughs> so wait, did you, did you get to go to like some, you, you didn't go to like LaGuardia or some like performing high school? No, you? no. I went to high school in, in California, actually. So I left Manhattan for a while. We, uh-huh. we moved like in the in the mid 90s. We moved to San Francisco. Really? Uh, my family and I. Yeah. And Where? And then uh, like Ashbury Heights area. Right? Uh-huh. I'm like around like Kate Ashbury, Coal Valley zone. Yeah. So I went to this like hippie school in SF and then uh, moved back to New York in 2002. To go to school? Yeah. And your parents still live in SF? No. No, they're, they they left. Yeah. San Francisco's its own fucking pile of gentry at this point, man. San Francisco is even worse than it's it is worse, here yeah. in terms of just being completely inaccessible to anyone who's not filthy rich. Yeah, I think so. And also, like, just the particular tech takeover was, like, really a tasteless vibe to me. Did you, was that already happening by, when you guys moved there? No. So it still no. had some personality. It def- yeah, definitely. It was yeah. cool. it was fun in the nineties. I I really actually loved being there. I thought it was a nice, uh, really different kind of city, but like uh, was kind of an easy place to move after New York in a funny uh-huh. way because it wasn't like going to Ohio or some shit where you're just like where where am I, man? Right. You know. But and it really had a lot of characters and weirdos and like really interesting people. It was still a pretty affordable city, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. Then. And the shift was like fast, man. It was it really fast. It happened in like fast. the early 2000s. Early 2000s, yeah. yeah it was kind of, I graduated high school in 2002 and then came back out here and it was like, uh, yeah, it's all within four or five years. It was right. kind of like a, a city I just had to totally lost connection with. It's really, it's really, I mean, whatever. The conversation of, uh, you know, mourning the loss of great cities is like, you know, it, it doesn't need to happen now in this moment but it it is really a shame because you can see like you can see the remnants of where the great stuff once was yeah you know i went to amoeba records in sf last year and i was like one of three people in the store it's crazy and there was like empty shelves and it was just like what the fuck is going on yeah it's really surreal man yeah goddamn did um but growing up for i mean you started playing music pretty early i take it really young yeah yeah on guitar 
I, st- I started on piano when I was like maybe six or something, seven, yeah. something like that. And then I picked up guitar at probably nine, uh-huh. ten maybe. Yeah. And your parents are musicians? No, no, no. They, they're they like really, um, I mean, for their part, they're like heads to some extent. Yeah. They like have good taste musically, uh-huh. you know what I mean? Um, not into like the, the really deep cuts, but you right. know, as far as parents go, I, I had interesting music around me. They took you to cool shit? Um. No, they they played cool shit in the house. What, you know like what jazz like, or yeah, like a lot of jazz music, a lot of like uh, a lot of like the early minimalism stuff. And really, my dad was like, my dad's really into classical music, so he would play you know a lot of Mahler and you know Rachmaninoff and Beethoven and Bach and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So it was like good good stuff to grow up in for sure. Right, right. So when you started on the piano at seven, was it sort of from that perspective of? Well, no, it wasn't like it wasn't really diving into those kind of pieces that young for me i don't think i had any interest at that point at all in classical music right, right? it was really more just like tr- trying to get a handle on what it meant to like make sounds and then he kind of organized or like knowing way so that, yeah. i don't know the piano study was really uh just about like facility with basic uh musical thinking and well, just learning rhythm learning yeah r- pitches r- and rhythm pitches notation and and kind of just you know start starting at the bottom right yeah, yeah yeah um and um yeah just then pretty quickly got got pulled into guitar so mm-hmm. um, did you start on electric or acoustic i started on electric guitar yeah doing like uh I don't know, doing whatever the fuck you do at nine, you know, Metallica <laughs> riffs and blue scales and shit. So you were like, like <laughs> did, did you did you read like guitar player in Guitar World? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you learned tabs? Oh yeah. Well, you know, I ne- I never got like deep in the tab thing, but I remember it's good. It's bad for your brain. Oh, it's horrible stuff. Yeah, but I did learn one NoFX song on by tabs when I was in like I hate that maybe, band so maybe much. sixth grade. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Why do they do that? Why do they teach kids to learn music in a really nonsensical, like regressive way? I think that's not about learning music, I guess. I think it's like they do it's like learn the song fast. Yeah. You know. There it is. So I right. think that's it. It's like it's like uh that's all I could come up with, man. I don't know. But even like <laughs> I mean I'm trying to think back cuz you know my first instrument was the electric bass. Mm. And I used to buy those magazines to, you know, and learn riffs and stuff. Mm. And I, I don't remember there being a lot of conversation in those magazines or around those tabs of like why it's really important to learn what the different you know keys are. So you know, mm-hmm. it's like if do you know this thing, the Nashville number system? Um, no, no, I don't. Well, we'll, we'll check it out. You know, when we finish this, but like, there's a thing in Nashville. It's a it's a form of music notation that they started. You know maybe 60 70 years ago in the Mm. studio system where you know an arranger could write up a chart really quick and these you know untrained but killer musicians could you know see what the arrangement is really quickly Mm. that to me still is like that's still based around music sure you know i don't know like why like there's like why these magazines (laughs) right right (laughs) we're so intent on like making like I don't know. Yeah, taking all of the taking all of the shit out of it, right? I mean, yeah. yeah, there's right. There's no there's no rhythm. There's no pitch. I mean, tab is just just fingerings. It's just position. It's right. Like, it's like aping something. Right, know? right. For sure. For what sure. were the first bands that you got into? Oh man, um, like really young. I got into metal really young, weirdly, and mm-hmm. then pretty quickly after that, got um, that like shifted pretty quickly into like this weird underground punk thing that I got into. Yeah, so what strain like, of metal were you first drawn to? Pretty, pretty mainstream stuff. Yeah, but like the classics. You know, 
Slayer, Metallica, Megadeth. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, like yeah. good shit. Great shit. Pantera. Pa- Dude, <laughs> man, I band. listened to Pantera the other day. Yeah. And it holds up. It does. It's fucking awesome. It does hold up. Yeah. I mean, Phil and Selmo's an idiot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Knuckle yeah. dragger, but it's like they're fucking heavy, man. Super heavy. And those records sound really good. Yeah. They sound really good. They sound really good. They're really <laughs> in your face, like yeah. dry. They sound amazing. Yeah. Did you, uh, do you ever watch those like VH1 metal shows? Mm. Now? Oh, not now. No, no. <laughs> what? They're still going? Yeah, dude. I watch them on like on Jet Blue Flights. <laughs> and they, uh, wow. Like, they, knuckle draggers that's exactly right I, I just i was thinking about that because i was watching they did like a countdown of the greatest metal records of all time mm. and they put vulgar display of power above rain and blood which i thought was really strange it's a bold move it's a bold move that i just don't agree with at all yeah i wouldn't agree with that yeah i saw lombardo a couple weeks ago and he he's like the greatest drummer of all time <laughs> <laughs> oh man yeah so yeah it we, we went pretty quick from like uh interest in metal to um you know getting like sufficiently hazed by like uh you know cooler older dudes who were like in san francisco yeah Yeah. into music i hadn't heard of and i was like oh shit you know these guys are amazing like classic hardcore like classic hardcore but they were like they were really like punk kids you know but like we're about this kind of this kind of that one of these last moments where like punk music was about like you don't you don't know what this is man we don't really want you to know what this is huh you know, and you, that's that was like very appealing, very sexy. Where you're like, yeah. somehow, especially as a you know, like eleven, twelve year old, you're like, whoa, man! Like, right? There's this whole universe I don't know anything about that you can't really go buy the record anywhere. You have to like find some weird flyer for this like yeah, yeah, yeah. community center and see this show. And so these like real underground bands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like um, a cool young exposure to like what a what like a really legit and kind of long-running like underground music scene was like so it was like a nice way to jump in but a lot of it kind of by accident but also like um it's just that really appealed to me yeah you know felt felt right right what how old are you when you started going to shows like 13 12 13 yeah yeah in san francisco i have to imagine it was great then i have to say the scene was really fucking cool in san francisco in the 90s and in oakland and berkeley and um you know you still had like 924 gilman street was like still really at its peak and yeah um in a lot of ways and um had a really great scene around it and was still had these kind of really like crusty but really like communitarian like totally kind of really open and closed at the same time like open in the right ways like open politically right but also because of that closed in a certain way like you're not welcome if you're gonna be a prick here right you know what i mean or you're also not welcome if you like don't really know about what's happening here did you and you you dove in fully kind of dove right in yeah yeah Yeah, and started like you know i had it was in a bunch of little hardcore bands in high school and did you play shows yeah yeah hell yeah yeah, we sure did man played it played at gilman street a bunch and um yeah a lot of a lot of other spots right funny do you um it's where i I never felt comfortable diving full even though like the first show i ever saw was bad brains when i was like 13 oh nice um and i was like really into bands like dead kennedy's really into circle jerks i was really into uh you know a lot of like really important bands i never felt comfortable diving all the way into Mm. the world of punk rock yeah I, I always, you know, I always knew my allegiance was to to you know Slayer and Sepultura, and, right? You know that right. that world. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, I got wrapped up in it pretty quick, and and really like, um, it's. I guess it's just where your where your like where your social group forms, and that's yeah. just what my friends and I were all into and all doing. It's like we yeah. all just got obsessed with going to these shows and starting to like collect these weird rare, rare records and trying to like write our own version of the shit and yeah. start these little bands and skateboarding and graffiti and the whole kind of dumb thing you do when you're 14. But it's always been like with punk, you know, there's always been like the the the, the community aspect has always been such a central yeah. thing more than any, you know, really any music that I know. Absolutely. Uh you know, you look at the guys like Ian McKay and clearly he set a template for a lot of people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it was really like about about a scene you yeah. know what i mean and about like a a, a local scene you know in like a really real way and that was something that f- just felt super exciting and f- it felt like special somehow mm-hmm. you know even without you're too young to really understand the broader complexities of like context and music and social history i yeah. mean you like learn a bit about that through exposure and stuff at that time but it really was just like something that felt like really special and like rare and unique at, at right. the age. So you're like, oh man, I want to like really, want to I want to like be accepted here, you know. Something I definitely got from punk, to this day, it's like very much part of who I am. Is it it made everything seem much more accessible. Like you could right. book your own shows, book your own tours, you can make your own records. Um, they don't have to be this big glossy thing. Totally, there's a much more immediate way to do it. Totally. Yeah, and I think that in a way that's like a lesson that carried through like uh, up to today for me. You yeah, know what I mean, and it had a lot to do with like how I began going about and like I don't know, I guess developing quote unquote like a career in music. You know what I mean? It was like in a funny way more to do with that approach than uh, anything I would have like learned learned as an adult. Well, you know? I mean, there's something like I think it's you know very specific to like the last ten years, and we'll 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 jump back. You know that string quartet of yours that you sent me. You know, I listened. I just listened to it this morning, and it's fucking awesome. Uh, but I knew I was gonna like it before I listened to it, or, or I was confident I was gonna <laughs> like it because there is now this generation of people who grew up, learn you know, with aggressive music and that right. being their first interest, who now write music for classical instruments mm. and have like such a handle on what that catharsis is supposed to look like, sound like, and feel like. Mm. So I mean, I feel like you, mm. people like Charlie, people like Mario, people like that really totally can bring this edge to what I think are like the scariest instruments of all time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely, man. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's, that's, that's definitely like been, that, that was like an ethos that I think like, uh, Z's has had since it first started. Yeah. Uh, obviously, I haven't been in it for the whole 18 year history of the band. Is but it really that long? It's, it's a long time now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. technically 15, but I think they they kicked it off a few years before that, kind of secretly. But right. Um, but that was one thing about that group that even before I was in it, always was kind of to me like when I was first getting you know active as like a whatever young adult in in music in New York was like, oh shit, what these dudes are doing is like what I'm about. You know what I mean? It's like it was really like sophisticated, unique, very mm-hmm. like technically driven music, but it was punk and it was like somehow they weren't quite playing jazz music. It wasn't really chamber music, even though mm-hmm. there's scores for everything. But it's it had the same energy to me that like seeing the Gods Hate Kansas or like AKA Nothing and mm-hmm. Street 32 in Oakland in like 96 had. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it was like, oh shit, like this is this is like exciting and intense and fucked up, but these guys are also like really brilliant players you know um and that yeah in a way i guess it kind of just 
speaks to the same attitude where they were just kind of like, man, we're just going to do this thing. Yeah. It doesn't matter if there's like a place for it particularly, you know? Um, and I think that's, that's been a cool way to carve out an identity in like, you know, concert music, um, or, uh, what I do is like a performer without having to feel like you're only able to come up if you really glob on to like, well, I'm an improviser or I'm like, uh-huh. a, I'm a, jazz cat i'm like playing post rock or i do classical music it's like if you just have some some like vision and 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 kind of social cohesion around that vision it doesn't really matter what the particular allegiance is you can you can just like push your shit Mm -hmm. you know and i think that 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 to me like comes from like an earlier punk scene kind of kind of ethos you know and sam had that for sure growing up in dc he was like in dc is like the ground zero for that yeah, shit totally yeah totally so and i think you know and i think greg too for sure and like um i think in, in a way it was like interesting because we all kind of came to you know con- contemporary music like concert music and and like uh modern experimental music through like jazz and punk and, mm-hmm. and really old classical stuff so it's kind of similar uh origins you know when you were coming you know when you were a teenager and you were sort of you were going to these shows and sort of figuring out who you were and how much were you thinking about musicianship? Uh, you know, actually pretty, pretty quickly I was thinking about it a lot and it, it yeah. and that was one thing that, especially at that time, um, I didn't really like have an answer for yet. Cause I, uh-huh. I was like, I, I began realizing, I guess like I'm actually like really good at guitar. Like, right. Maybe I'm better than a lot of people I know at guitar, but I didn't really know how to fit that in uh-huh. to that scene and all. And that's also when I started getting really into to jazz music and like got re- really heavy down that whole route and even really like academically heavy about it in high school and stuff. In high school. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they were, I didn't have a way to integrate them at all. So at that time I didn't, I hadn't kind of figured that out yet. So in a way it was like, I had this, uh, I had these two lives mm-hmm. musically as a kid, you know, um, where it would be like, I'd have kids I played jazz music with and I'd have this kind of really serious pursuit of that on one side. And then, I'd have like a hardcore band where we were like just chug-a-lugging, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I didn't like look down on either one, but I didn't have a sense yet of like where, I don't know, where where to like integrate uh, like technique and style, I guess, for a better, I mean, lack of a better expression. That, I think there's a challenge, uh, certainly one of the big challenges in my musical life has been figuring out how to marry or bring together certain ideas and when he when i talk about it in hindsight you know i remember thinking like you know the music i love that i'm you know i'm really drawn to like aggressive music i play the clarinet you know and i don't know how these things are going to figure you know going to talk to each other <laughs> totally. but we're going to figure it out and it took a while it took like 10 or 15 years yeah, yeah. well that's 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 exactly it man and it was like, i think um i don't know ultimately to me that's what like leads to great to great style and it has nothing to do with like the instrument particularly in a way yeah. it's like uh it's like yeah, it's like attitude and technique and like social application yeah i've found to be like the the shit that works i don't know and that that's what i you don't get as a kid you know what i mean right the sense of how to leverage all that or synthesize it so when you finished high school and you got accepted to columbia which is not an easy school to get into um and why, why did you not want to study music why did you go to philosophy yeah um well you know i think that um 
equally equitable pursuits. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I went into philosophy for the money. For the man, money, You know yeah. what I mean? It was like I knew I needed a big job, you know? Yeah. So, no, I I, uh, <laughs> I felt that, like, for for me, the, the, the thought of doing a, a degree in music didn't... Uh, didn't equate to like what my goals in music were mm. um which is not to say that i didn't feel like i had a lot to learn about music and i s studied a lot and continue to and actually studied music probably more rigorously by not being in music school than i think i would have had i gone to a conservatory mm -hmm. you know um and the thing i loved about studying philosophy i guess despite all the things i d didn't like about it professionally was like um it teaches you how to learn really well yeah um and that I found really great for getting more advanced with my like music music study, particularly just with with like composition stuff. And and the further I got into contemporary classical music, and I think just that that experience of like working through such difficult ideas and texts in in college and grad school, like um, you went to grad school, yeah, yeah, uh -huh. stayed at Columbia and was doing like an MA and PhD in philosophy and comp lit and stuff, and I, I dropped out, but to to do music, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, grad school dropout, grad school dropout, yeah, I finished the masters, but not the other shit, right? Yeah. You finished your master's degree, yeah, yeah you have yeah. a master's of philosophy, I do, yeah. I didn't realize, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a little out of my element now. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> out of no, my depth. No. Wait, no, no. Uh, so did you? So you, when you were at Columbia, you stayed up at Columbia. You were just very involved in that world, or were you coming downtown, and going to Brooklyn, and checking shit out? Oh yeah, no, I was really, in, I was really engaged in the city for sure. Yeah, for sure. When I was up there, what I liked about it was like um, I wasn't particularly interested in like the the campus hang, as it were. Right. I loved going to school there and I was, you know, I have a very nerdy part of myself and, uh, it was a great place to like study, but you know, I also liked to party and play music and shit. So, but I, and I knew the city well enough. So mm -hmm. I, you know, even kind of first, <clears throat> second year in school would be like, yeah. Out, out I used about. to work at a bar up there oh, shit. around the time you would have been there. Okay. What? Ding dong lounge. No. The West end. Oh no shit. Whoa, I used to work at the West End. Legendary. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a Cuban place now, right? It's something else now, but that oh, was, man. I have to assume, you went there underage? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like they basically exclusively had an underage uh, under clientele for a certain number of years. There. <laughs> what was so funny about that bar was the bar's slogan was literally where, it was, uh, it's where Columbia had its first drink. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was, that bar, it was hilarious like how much they didn't give a fuck about serving minors oh yeah outrageous outrageous yeah, yeah famously and i feel like people people who grew up in new york city it also, was it was even a high school bar yeah for for like uh yeah for uptown new york kids yeah and it's far enough side. now that i could tell you that working there the owners were like yeah just accept any id yeah yeah oh shit yeah wow yeah, they were this straight up policy. like well, this is how we're gonna make our money unreal yeah Total, total gangsters. Good on them, dude. Yeah, you know there was I mean? a lot of bad shit that went down at that bar. I could tell. I mean, I could. T <laughs> I could tell a lot of stories about that place. Oh, I bet I, there were some bad dudes working there. Yeah, that building is haunted. Mm. Mm. Well, most of the old ones here are. You know, yeah. there's, there's, there's a lot of ghosts in New York. Man. There's a lot of ghosts. Man, you see them, right? Oh yeah. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. That's one of these things about this neighbor. We were you know talking about it a second ago, but like, I can't walk like on Orchard Street without fucking seeing them and feeling them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder about the people that are like infiltrating the neighborhood now, like if they're even aware. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. 
No. No. Isn't that crazy? It's cra- it's shocking to me. It, yeah. I, I, you know, I get weepy about it sometimes, but in my stronger right. moments when I'm not weepy about it, it's, yeah, it's mind-blowing. But I mean, don't you, like, look, man, if you're... You know, if you're renting a fucking three thousand dollar one bedroom on Orchard Street mm. in an old tenement building, yeah, do you not stop for a second and be like, "Oh, I bet you know a family of ten lived in this place, you know, yeah. eighty years ago." Yeah, absolutely. No, that that's I mean, that's really what blows my mind is is also just the total that that total disconnect from history, complete, right? And it's like you know, it's easy enough to say something like, "Well, there's this kids have no respect." It's like, but it's more than that. It's like. These were slums, man. Like yeah. literally slums. That meant something. You know what I yeah. mean? Like this was a place for the downtrodden to like cohere and rise up and like get better, man, and get a get a swing at being in America, you know? Um these were real slums. And yeah. there's something about that that I think is like uh sacred a little bit. You know what I mean? Absolutely sacred. And so seeing it, yeah, I mean, seeing seeing a place like you're saying, you know, where a family of 10 not only would have been living in there, but sharing a bathroom with four other families on the same floor yeah. and, you know, uh, sleeping together to stay warm in the winter because there's probably no heat in the fucking building or, right. you know, whatever it is. And, you know, it's not like that means you have to somehow artificially preserve poverty in a neighborhood. That's nonsense. That's but not the idea. That's not the idea. But it's like you're saying, I wonder sometimes, it's like, what what, what do you lose in terms of like historical empathy and awareness if your tenants are paying these totally inflated prices for mm-hmm. shit that's still small, but also is kind of this this graveyard for like a really bygone era of struggle, you know? But lots of no bygone awareness. areas. I mean, you know, we're going all over the place, but this is great. I, I remember as a little kid, uh, you know, I, I grew up 45 miles north of the city. Yeah. Fucking sticks. Uh, you know, 45 miles is not far, but culturally it's a world away, you know, sure. universe. Sure. Um, but I remember coming in and going down to Russ and Daughters or going to Chinatown mm. and being scared out of my mind. This is like, oh, you know, 1984, 85, like mm. looking at the Lower East Side like it was, you know, Night of the Living Dead, which oh, it was. Yeah. It was. Just yeah. junkies and, and whores everywhere. That's all it was. Drug mm. dealers, gang members, junkies. And that is something to be aware of. It sure is. Like, the, I mean, there's a lot of blood in these streets. Yeah, man. You know, and yeah. it's not, there's just something that feels very unokay about keeping yourself dull to that. Yeah, keeping yourself dull to it and and kind of uh, like da- dancing on it, you know what I mean? Yeah. For lack of a better phrase, it's like uh, it's a playground, right? You know what I mean? And I think there's there's one thing for a neighborhood to transform and uh, redevelop. I mean, I kind of hate that word because it has like really capitalist overtones. But strictly speaking, for a neighborhood to redevelop, there's nothing wrong with this, and I think that. You, could mean a lot more than what I think it narrowly means now, which mm-hmm. is like commerce, consumption, parties, mostly bars, mostly right. fancy well, restaurants. Mean, right? Commerce like, is, you know, like, man, there's so many places to go with this, but like, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at, um, there's a lot that's unsustainable Absolutely. happening. And retail doesn't make sense anymore mm-hmm. conventional retail mm-hmm. i don't like they can't there's nothing that can stay open around here anymore it's yeah. fucking weird like yeah. i don't know the last time you went to the stone the, the original on avenue c and second street mm. but you know i've watched that corner go full spectrum like it was <laughs> first scary yeah 
And then it was kind of like, oh, people are out and about and there's like stuff opening up. But now it's gone back to being scary and desolate because no one can afford to open businesses around there. Right, so right, right, just right. closed. <laughs> so weird. It is really weird. I, I guess you see, like, you see that along Bleecker Street too now, right? With yeah. like people kind of holding out for these super high monthly rents. And so they'd rather just shut her up and keep yeah. something empty. So you have all these kind of knocked out teeth and a smile along the street for like so blocks. Weird, you know, it's bizarre, right? So when you were at Columbia and you were checking shit out, like where were you going mm. to check out shows? Yeah, we, well, I, I would see... Uh, like jazz music uptown, I would go downtown for like rock stuff and yeah. more out shit. And then uh, at that time was kind of when um, there was that really like first big DIY explosion in Williamsburg, and that yeah. was like the scene I was in at that time. So um, you know, was in a in a band uh, called Animal that was like a, a two piece just guitar and drum duo. Did really like kind of technical through composed like post rock stuff, but with mm-hmm. lots of these little explosive improv moments in it um but that band kind of was the first thing that like brought me out to brooklyn and to that scene in a in a kind of meaningful way yeah so that was kind of part of the whole time when like gang gang dance and z's and stay fucked and you know archaeopteryx and whatever and all these other bands were like starting to just do big warehouse shows in williamsburg or the kind of early little clubs that would put on you know out music down there um but that was the yeah, like, I don't know, 2004, 5, yeah. 6 kind of zone was when we, we first started, like, getting getting into that that hang. Right. That was a... Uh, Which was a cool moment, actually. It was a really cool moment. I feel like it lasted maybe four years, but it felt really good for a while. It did. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but also places like the Cake Shop and... Oh, yeah. And Tonic totally. and... Well, I mean, totally. certainly Tonic. Uh, there was just great shit happening everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, there really was. There really was. I mean, Cake Shop's like a lamentable one. I mean, they all are in certain ways. Yeah. But like, because um, that had a great moment. You know what cake I mean? Cake Shop was great. It really had a great fucking moment. Yeah. And um, I think that fell off quicker than a lot of the other ones that held on or all of a sudden mm-hmm. just got cut off really suddenly when they were still doing good shit. But um, you could kind of see that one decay a little bit. But by the same token, I mean, who cares? Cool spot, man. I mean, Cake Shop to me was always one of those places. Like, first of all, like if you ask me, like, hey, what's all your favorite shit? Let's just put it in one place. Like, right. coffee, records, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. you know, books, you know, yeah. decent pastries, um, yeah, right. and then live music and cheap beer. Absolutely, this is like the best shit in the world. Absolutely. Uh, and Cake Shop was like a cool enough venue that you could, like, if you had a show there, you could really turn it into something. Mm. you know mm. like it could feel like a real show down there yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and had yeah had some of my first like really uh yeah really really like f- fun and 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 packed like weird weird music shows at that cake shop maybe, yeah you know 13 yeah, yeah. years ago now but yeah so what was the decision to drop out of your graduate program <laughs> Um, well, you know, it was honestly, it was about like wanting to, wanting to try to like take a swing at doing music full time, Yeah, you know, and I had been, um, were you, what, what signs were you seeing that you felt like this was something to pursue? Well, um, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't really have, um, signs of it, so to speak yet. I had more like these feelings like I had to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of coincided with me be- becoming i think for the first time like really um i guess start, starting to see solutions to like kind of this question i was raising earlier in high school about like uh 
getting into jazz and then not figuring out like how or why it might be compatible with liking punk music. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, I found like um, like contemporary concert music was like the answer to me in, a, in somehow I don't know, and I uh, didn't didn't quite know what that would mean in terms of the work I was going to make. But it, it, the short of it is like I started getting really serious about composition and wanting to like really develop that, and that became super. Uh, exciting to me. I had stopped doing the the band a few years before that, uh, this group Animal, and um, was starting to do all, like all my first solo work at that time as a for guitar as a guitarist. Yeah, yeah, and starting to push that work in like much more much more out directions than I had been uh, before that point. Um, but also something that again like raised familiar feelings of being like this isn't really part of the kind of free jazz hangs. I'm not really doing concert music with it but the right. stuff i was into was like definitely still like very through composed and technical and a lot of extended technique work um but it didn't i didn't feel like i knew what corner of the scene that was in and that again just like got me really weirdly like motivated to mm -hmm. be like man i gotta i'm gonna carve this out you know mm -hmm. um and also honestly like getting discovering glenn gould weirdly enough yeah yeah watching videos of him yeah and buying all of his records and shit I, yeah. I was like it was like in the middle of grad school and i like um seeing what what he did with something so so traditional so exposed like box music so right. like so much a part of just the inherited legacy of being into music the shit that we think is available to everybody you know like right Bach. and he takes like such a fucking radical radical swing at it yeah and makes it in, in in my view, maybe better than it had ever been before. Absolutely, you know what I'm saying. He makes but it scream. He makes it fucking scream, right. and he makes it stylish and intellectual and modern. You know, and and really avant garde actually. And I yeah. think that that was also just ex extremely compelling to me. Um, and so, like that, that's sort of also when I got really really interested in in simultaneously pursuing work as like a classical guitarist and and composer. Um, so. Old, so, old and new, you know, kind of excluding the middle. So when you're looking at modern composition, you're looking at what is, for a lot of people, for most composers, I mean, it's a very hermetic practice. You know, mm -hmm. you work alone, and then you come out of it with a score, hopefully. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> and hopefully the things that are on the page will be playable and exciting to the people to whom you're going to present it. Sure. But did you go into this process alone? Did you, were you taking composition lessons with anyone? Um, you know, I wasn't doing any like, uh, I, I wasn't doing any like formal s study at that point. Um, but I also wasn't really going into it alone, so to speak. I had uh, good, good fortune to kind of like connect with a few uh, mentors and colleagues. And who, who uh, are you? Who were these people? Uh, well, Eric Wubbles was one uh -huh. guy in particular who uh, was like hugely helpful to me early on. He, um, I don't know if you know him at all. I'm, I know who he is. I've never yeah. met him. Great, great dude. Um, yeah. Great composer and killer pianist. He, um, it's like part of the Wet Ink Ensemble. And, mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, he was living in the East Village at that time. And so was I. And, um, I had basically, yeah, begun kind of developing the first like sets of more like fully formed and kind of serious composerly works of mine. And he was like a really huge help as far as 
getting together the the first steps of like you know getting getting some shit ready to like do it with a group you know what i mean and yeah. um i guess i was i i felt fortunate that the first few things i like presented went well and and kind of helped to widen my circles and and uh more than anything it was about like this kind of same social element that i felt like in high school of mm -hmm. just kind of finding the right weirdos in that scene who were great technically but had these same kind of off-kilter philosophical ideas about what this music means now right you know mm -hmm. um because I've never been particularly interested in in like the really academic, uh, kind of on the nose sense of what classical music is, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's an exciting time for New York now, in particular, because there's like probably more than ever now uh, a lot of groups and composers and ensembles and composer performers who are pursuing that kind of work in a way that's more akin to like. A DIY scene from the '90s. It's crazy. There's been an explosion you know? yeah. in it since, like, I don't know. We'll say 2000. Yeah. Between the ensembles that have, you know, come up uh, very organically, whether it's Ice or or, or Talea or Tack or Wet Ink or you know, mm -hmm. there's like a million of them. Mm -hmm. And then there's all these composers who are coming from a very similar place. Yeah. It's really. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's if you if you look at. I mean, I, let's talk about New York because I know New York. But if you look at you know the trajectory of creative music in New York City for the last like seventy years, it makes perfect sense. Right. You know, if you look at people like you know like Zorn and people of that generation, who were the first generation to really take in all different musics concurrently mm. as listeners, mm -hmm. and then somehow begin to synthesize that, I think it makes perfect sense that the next step would be people, sort of, with. I I think I think it makes sense that this is happening. Yeah, I think so too. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's like. Um, it's an interesting thing because like there's so many and rightly so there's so many associations with like classical music and these these hyper elite institutional kind of structures that are yeah. very exclusive that are really class limiting right like uh um Carnegie Hall the Philharmonic I mean right. they're like fancy elite venues are expensive to go to they present a really specific kind of programming right and so in a way I think like these other contemporary movements in concert music now are starting to fulfill a kind of countercultural function uh that maybe like punk bands would have for a lot of us 20 years ago but mm -hmm. uh in this kind of unexpected way where it's like um i don't know yeah in other words like providing an alternative in a strict sense right right, right. not not and even fuck something like genre it's like alternative literally like yeah, these yeah. are alternative places to see contemporary music and uh, where like musicians and composers have more programmatic control, have more financial control, and you've got mm -hmm. like a totally different kind of social hang around it. Um, that's also like yeah, more more collaborative and isn't isn't like uh, stuck up in some kind of cartoonish way or whatever. You know? So, what was the first piece that you wrote and then was subsequently performed by people other than yourself? Yeah, it would have been. Um, a string quartet work in like 2011 for for the Mivos Quartet, who I've since worked with a lot. And great become, people, yeah, great musicians, yeah. great people. Absolutely. So it was, was super fortunate to connect with them kind of early on in my uh, 
Because they're, I mean, work. they're again another one of these ensembles that you know no one asks them to exist. Like, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they <laughs> exactly. put their shit together exactly, and have been commissioning young living composers. It's yeah, like the coolest thing in the world. It's the coolest shit, and they're totally yeah again totally self directed. They're all like obviously extremely schooled and and really serious concert musicians, but they're also yeah they're self organized. They're self directed. Yeah. They're uh, I think really cogent in terms of like what their vision for uh what they want to present is and why and how to do it and they're like really nicely uncompromising with that which i which i love you know mm-hmm. um i think that there's also a lot of uh, there's a lot to be said for that like uh yeah how 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 an ensemble like that programs and chooses what to program you know there is I mean? Because it's easy to like get a few hits doing some weird shit, and then you do your three records in a row of kind of easy listening pop mm-hmm. classical, you know, as I mean, as you start to get attention. And to me, that's what what a group like Mivo's Quartet, or or even in a way, a group like Z's, I've always admired about that. It was like, uh, you know, these these groups that for whatever reason get get a little bit of attention doing their weird, freaky, intense thing, and then you kind of have this moment where you're like, all right, well. We're set. You know, we're set. Are <laughs> we going to like this, now yeah. make this a little bit softer and like, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, and the choice to not do that is fucking deep. You it's know insanely I mean? deep. But when you're, so you're sitting down to write a string quartet, you're looking at a blank page. Uh, <laughs> do you, where, where do you, I've always had a problem and a fear and like an anxiety around tradition. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm very aware of tradition, and I'm very respectful slash like scared of it. Yeah. So I will often not do things just by like talking myself out of saying, "Oh, I don't, I don't belong in that tradition." So I'm not even going to approach a string quartet or a, right. a jazz combo or any of these things. Right. And you know, like how do you? I don't know, man. Maybe that's just me. But like, do you feel like scared of like, when you look at a string quartet? You say, "Man, what do I have to say to that?" <laughs> god yeah well you know i mean that's like uh that like kind of cuts to a really deep question that's probably applicable to all artists right which is like there are moments where you could sit down and look at fucking james joyce or like sylvia plath and be like why would i even bother trying to write a poem why would i even bother trying to write it you know what i mean yeah um but there's also equally moments where you'd be checking out James Joyce or like listening to Bach and you're so fucking pumped up by how wonderful it is. And uh-huh. you're like, man, I have to do something. Do you know what I mean? So I guess for me, it's been about like just trying to harness the second part of that energy more. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because of course you have those moments where you're like, man, why am I even doing this? Every, you know, I'm just like, Liggety wrote some better <laughs> shit I'm ever going to do. Who cares? Right. Who cares about my shit? Um, but then again, same, same, same vibe where I could be listening to the exact same piece of his three months later and then being like, fuck, I have to write something. Yeah. I have to do this. You know And we I mean? know things they didn't know. That's right. That's right. I, I never even really, I have to remind myself of that because mm. we do have, we, we have access to things that they didn't have access to. So these materials are still transformable in exciting ways and they always will be they always will be and and you know i think like even schoenberg wrote about this really beautifully uh and he's a cool dude to have written about that because he was so infamous for just you know uh, 
the most new, the most novel, the yeah, first yeah. guy to systematize atonal language into like a really formal, concrete, compositional uh-huh. system. And like one of the deepest things he says later in his life is like, there's still plenty of music to be written in C major. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, God damn, you're right. Of course. Of course. Right. Yeah. Uh, but how nice to hear that from, uh, from him. From the cat. From the cat. You know <laughs> what I mean? Just the most ab- abstruse, like systematic kind of outrider. You know what I mean? So, um, that ethos too I also really agree with and Glenn Gould had a really nice comment about this too I think he was like the only justification we have for being artists is to attempt to like establish our difference from the world uh, Mm -hmm. which is to say like to do it differently um, every time and there's some kind of aspect of like commitment about that that's really exciting to me yeah 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 um and I think that's what keeps it vital. I, uh, and so I guess more more often than not, in other words, that that's a that's a point of excitement to me <sighs> than it is like a sense of feeling burdened by uh, how inferior I may or may not be to all the great works that have predated us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because that shit will crush you, man. It's crushing. I'm fe- I feel it in my chest right now as we're talking. <laughs> I was at I was at Amoeba Records in Hollywood like a week and a half ago. Yeah. And I just, every time I go into that place, I'm like, all right, man, all the answers are here. Mm. You know, I just got to do some, like, some dowsing. I got to find some shit, right. you know? Right. And I have that moment. I'll be in the classical section. I'm looking at all these, like, Ligeti records. And I'm just like, man, I, I'm just going to go fucking j- run out to the Sunset Strip and jump in front of a car, man. Yeah, like, yeah, I can't yeah, do totally. anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So when you, you started playing Z's, what year? Um, 2012. 2012. Yeah. When I started working with, um, working with Sam about, uh, two years before that, I, that was in right when he and I were both starting our uh, kind of first main like solo project. So he was starting this this thing called Diamond Terrifier. Diamond Terrifier, uh, and that's when I was starting this project I have called Bacchanalia. That's like electroacoustic uh, classical guitar Bach yeah. tr- arrangements. Um, so we started um, like booking a bunch of shows together and and curating like this this set of events that. Uh, would kind of cycle through uh what we were both into at that time and uh then we started doing a little bit of touring together in other words just mostly kind of helping each other lift up our like solo things you know what i mean yeah um and we did a he ran this kind of really cool ongoing series at zebulon called practice that was yeah, like I every, that. every tuesday for yeah. a long time and um we did a bunch of those together and kind of through in a way it was like really through that whole zebulon hang that the this kind of last incarnation of Z's really coalesced. So mm-hmm. that, that was like, yeah, 2011, 2012. Um, and what is the process for Z's? I mean, that band is like, it, it's an interesting phenomenon in a lot of ways. <laughs> just yeah. that, are you guys still, I mean, is it is it a composer's project still? Is it? Well, you know, um, yes. I think that what we've been doing uh, in the last two years in particular is probably the most improvisation the band has ever done in 15 years. But yeah. the last um, kind of like proper record we put out was um, was very composed. Yeah. You know, totally, for the most part, a through composed record. Um, but we also, I mean, we fucking played that material so much before making that record and, and after. Like, I think, toured it in over 25 countries over like three years yeah. probably 250 shows or something yeah, yeah yeah so you do 
that material that much in that many different places. Um, and it creates this like weird kind of telepathic instrumental capacity Absolutely. between all the, all the players, you know? And I think by the end of that album cycle, we were really getting to a point of being able to improvise together in, I think ways that were even surprising for us as dudes who improvise a lot with a lot of different people. It was like all of a sudden we were realizing we could do shit together as a trio that we couldn't do with other players. Right. And that just comes, of course, from playing this hyper-composed, difficult music for fucking three years every other week. You know what I mean? So um, that was really exciting. And so now the last, uh, yeah, kind of the last year and a half, we've been really not playing any written material at all free improvisation but, yeah but through this practiced lens but, of and shared history that's you know yeah. utterly unique totally so i guess in that way in a, in a in a in a surprising way i think for the three of us it doesn't even really feel improvised because it feels like we're kind of speaking this language. language yeah exactly yeah i mean i've got a trio that i man i've got to get this trio playing more yeah hell but yeah. it's we're playing with a very specific language mm. and that has been to me such a satisfying um time and place to experience because it feels like not only is the is it music rewarding to play mm. and these relationships personal and musical become deeper but it feels like wow i can hear where the last 15 years has led to this yeah it's awesome it's awesome. It's fucking cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I think um, how crucial does being a player feel to your work as a composer? Oh man, you know I think it feels uh, it's hugely it's 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 hugely important. And yeah. I, I guess more than anything, it's about uh, it, there's like some empathy that's at play in it. Yeah, um, I think that not to denigrate anybody at all i don't mean it this way in the least bit but i think that for even absolutely amazing composers who are not like practicing performers um sometimes when you have those elements in a score which you should where you're trying to like push the technical capacity of an instrument um there's oftentimes just this there there can be maybe an expectation that just like well the right dude will work this out mm -hmm. right um as opposed to like having that be part of the concern from the moment it's being written, like e even for pieces I've written recently for exceptional virtuosos, it's like the shit that I'm really into is getting the first few drafts done and having as much rehearsal time as possible to have that be the thing that edits the piece and finishes it. Mm -hmm. So I guess just in other words, this vibe of like not showing up with what I just assumed to be a finished document, mm -hmm. but something like, um, an opportunity for the people who are going to perform it to then inform how the piece itself will be finished mm -hmm. and revised. Yeah. You know? And so I guess in other words, just being open to the flexibility of it, um, and not being, not being precious about like, well, you know, my initial ideas, right. Too valid, man. It's like, right, 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 right. Of course it's not. <laughs> do you do, um, so when is a piece of music done to you? Oh wow! Uh, ra rarely, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess like te yeah. you know, technically, if when it's premiered and then when we record it. But yeah. you know, honestly, even like um, my string quartet number three, which will be uh, only coming out on record in the in this this forthcoming spring, 
that's the one you sent me yeah 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 I, like like premiered a few years ago at issue project room in uh in little selections and then i wound up writing two additional movements and quote finished the piece um but then mubo's quartet wound up touring that piece quite a lot hmm. played it like a bunch in europe and asia and north america and then a lot more in the states um and then after them you know really getting a lot more performances under their belt we wound up probably making another i don't know eight or nine or ten substantial revisions to that yeah. score before it was recorded um and then we did that again most recently along with uh the premiere of this this trio piece for vicky chow and this orchestra piece for wedding ensemble like a, a few months ago in new york and even at that concert, it was probably the, I don't know, 25th time Evis yeah. had played this piece. It was like they were finding five or six other new vibes in it. Yeah. Um, and it's a quite a determinate score. It's not really aleatory at all, right? right. It's, it's like really written music. And even at that point, I'm thinking like, fuck, these dudes are still finding all these cool <laughs> yeah. new ways to make the piece better, you know? Right. Um, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, well, we already recorded it, shit. But so, you know, I don't know. It's never done, I suppose. But that's yeah. what's. That's also a really interesting thing to me about classical music in general, at its best. And that was the shit that, for me, was so revolutionary about getting into Gould's vibe. Was it's like this music you could look at as totally static, fixed, uh -huh. canonical tradition. Of course, it's not right. It's always about the dude who's going to reread it. Right, give you a different perspective on it. Even the most fucking ballyhooed music of all time, you yeah, know yeah, I mean? yeah. Even fucking Mozart or Bach or whatever it is. Um, the, to me, those pieces are like never done. Right, and that that's like what the art of performing written music is about. I guess is like seeing it as a living tradition and as something that is accessible to you. And I guess that there's there is an element of like overcoming the the sanctimonious fear of doing justice to this huge tradition mm -hmm. or having this more kind of punk attitude where you're like you're trusting your technique and your vision and you're going to do it in this really kind of weird surprising way but i think that's what ultimately keeps that music totally vital and mm -hmm. and relevant i mean otherwise it's like museum work you know right which is fine but it has a different meaning yeah it has a very different meaning Man, it's a lot to unpack. I feel like <laughs> Shit. I feel like uh did you see this guy, um, this fucking kid who in uh Newport there was this article in the Boston Globe a couple weeks ago. Oh shit. It's like twenty five year old put together this classical festival. Wow. And it was like the fire festival fry fest fire festival where like he scumbagged everyone <laughs> oh, and no, like no, owes, no. you know, like hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, to wow. musicians. Oh, no, I didn't see that. That's a drag. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know why I just brought that up. Fuck. The classical world is rough, man. It can be. Oh, yeah, it's all rough, man. All this shit is rough. It's like, I, I feel, <laughs> man. You, no, with classical music, the, the classical world is really, um, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's a whole. That's a whole thing, man. A whole but other I, world, I, but I feel it's like tough, yeah. if you're a player and you've, if you've been out in the streets, mm. like, I feel like it, it, it's it's a really valuable tool mm. it's a valuable tool to have been out in the streets uh for 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 your creative output for your ability to get things done for your ability to finalize projects whether that's a recording or or a concert i think you build up a lot of chops by playing mm. in bands and mm. figuring out how to get shit done that's so true so true um 
Yeah, and I think there's no substitute for that. And I guess yeah. ultimately that, um, again, not to shit on it in any way, but that also to me was just why I was never like, oh, I got to go to conservatory. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was more like, man, maybe I'll just like read the Harmona Lyra myself. And, yeah. Like play in this fucking weird post-punk band and like study philosophy and meet the right people who will teach me a lot. It's a pretty you know. singular trajectory. That yeah, it's a weird, it. fucked up path. But it for works. Sure. But it, it worked for me. I'm seeing I, more and know. more people doing it. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. But it's, I don't know, it's also part of like why, why weird music is weird, man. I mean, it's yeah. weird ingredients, weird yeah, stories, yeah. you know what I mean? And there's no like, there's no path for that shit. Right. I, you know what I'm saying? And it's like... Um, that's cool. That's that's cool to me. And every I feel like most of the people I work with or meet or even the people I like totally look up to who are older than us that I get to play with or watch live or whatever, like they all have some freaky path to this thing. Yeah. Right? You know what I mean? It's so rare even looking at the really luminous mm-hmm. cats at the top where everybody's just been like, Yeah, well, we did exactly this one thing, we all have that in common and mm-hmm. there it is, you know. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got some freaked out root to it, but in my experience, most of the people who have the coolest shit to say and uh, express musically... Very unique paths. Yeah, I've had this yeah. kind of bizarre route to it, you know, and, and that usually bears on, like, all the other people they've been thrown in the mix with their whole life, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I think that that's the, that's the thing, is, like, there's there's no replacement for, like, just being forced to do the shit in front of a bunch of people yeah. over and over, you know? And mm-hmm. that's, like... Uh, the best schooling you know what i mean because mm-hmm. you learn from your fucking mistake there in a way you don't you know what i mean reading a book or like in a lecture or on a yeah. test right it's like when you're fucking humiliated because you've like just really flunked it yeah you know yeah you learn quick man <laughs> right and now that you've been living upstate and doing the studio work what's that like for you up there uh it's cool man i you know i i um it's bizarre, but it's very cool. It's bizarre. It's been, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's been a crazy, wonderful opportunity to get to do that and, you know, kind of thing in my life I never expected I'd have a chance to do. And yeah. uh, so it's, that's a, it's a blessing in a lot of ways, but it's a hell of a lot of work. It's yeah. crazy, like running, a, running a building and running a, running a business like in music Yeah, is insane. You have a lot of sessions going on? Yeah. Yeah. Not, um, not so much the last few months I've been really uh, like busy with other projects. So I've right. been, been kind of just hunkering down alone in there recently. <laughs> yeah. But you know, for kind of like the f- four years before that, almost straight, we were uh, just doing records all the time. And you taught yourself this? Um, no, yes and no. I mean, I really, really uh, was mentored by uh, this, this guy, Henry Hirsch, who yeah. um, was like a really, really great and famous, like kind of pop and rock record producer from the city. And he, uh, moved his studio up from uh from like Times Square area uh-huh. to that place in Hudson. Um and really like classic expert old school analog recordist and producer. Yeah. Um so that was also, you know, just one of those kind of really fortunate sets of circumstances to get to really learn that disappearing craft from like a real master, you know. Yeah. Which he he really is. Yeah, know? a true master. True master. On a very high level. Yeah. yeah. And so that was that was amazing and I think, you know, I never really had or have aspirations even though i've now i guess technically become one to to be a record producer or an yeah. engineer you know and it's funny because now it's like i can look 
in the last four years and be like, oh shit, I engineered like 40 records or it's some amazing. shit or, you know, produced like eight records and you're like, fuck, weird. Yeah. But the thing that's deep about it, not only then to get to build relationships with those those clients or musicians you're working with is just as an artist, that side of the practice, I feel like has made me way better. Totally. Do you know what I mean? As a, yeah. As a player and a it writer. It is a very, making records, recording music constructing sound mm. you know separate from when it's happening um i mean you're you're playing god yeah it's crazy. another aspect of composition that is just like utterly utterly you're i mean i don't know what else to say like you're playing god you're presenting a version of something that's not real right and, right. <laughs> and you are able to bring out so much nuance and present ideas mm. within the music that might not be possible mm. from just an ensemble with instruments. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's really true. And I guess seeing how, um, on the, seeing how the production side amounts to a similar level of creative work at its best yeah. was really deep, but it's also so much about creative work that's adding up to making somebody else's vision better which is dope because in, in also at its best i think there's very little ego in producing it's more about uh in other words it's not about like this is my statement no it's man. serving the music it's serving the music right yeah. and it's like how do you make these dudes sound the fucking best and well, fulfill their idea right. the best way and that's a cool challenge because it's hard but it's also like Man, it feels good when that really works, you know? And it's also really creative work to do. I mean, I'm talking, this is, you know, from my perspective, and I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with what I'm about to say, but one, you know, going back to this idea of people who, like yourself, who started with, you know, guitar, drum-based, aggressive music, who have, you know, mm -hmm. sort of, uh, uh, you know, be, who have become composers and, and are writing for classical instruments, they're, I've, I love classical music, Classical records tend to drive me crazy. Yeah. You know, two mics in a room, right. you can hear pages turning and you can hear, you know, it's like, that's a very specific thing. It's an art that I respect, but like, why not close mic everything? Totally. Why not record everything in sections, totally. edit it together and have this like really extreme representation of the musical idea? Yeah. And now that it's happening, I feel like prayers of mine are being answered. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think, you know, like the, the, the classical recording tradition had this kind of moment of like hitting really fucking high peaks when the major labels had their huge, great studios and yeah. were funding these really big, dope records. Um, you know, like in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, you know, like Columbia and DECA and Sony and EMI are, are you know, putting a lot of money into making these huge, excellent classical recordings that are fucking great. Yeah. And then there was this like long period of decline and right. dip, I think, really, in like the vibe of mainstream classical recordings. Um, and I do also feel like in the last five years, maybe that recently, um, there's been a kind of shift again to thinking about presenting classical music from a production standpoint in the same way you might engineer like a rock record, a hip hop mm -hmm. record, a uh, uh, experimental music record, whatever it is. In other words, like allowing production to enter in as a feature of the, the art document itself, right? And and not just like transparent, two mics, one room, go. Right. You know what I'm saying? And like uh, that shit is cool as hell, man. I mean, it's literally like theater versus filmmaking. Right, interesting. You know, and I remember, I've always felt that way. 
when you sit next to an instrument like that, like as mm-hmm. far as I'm sitting from you right now, mm-hmm. and you're hearing, like you're really hearing every detail of the instrument, uh, you're listening to music as it's meant to be heard. Right. And I feel like, man, put a mic right next. You, I want to hear the, the the strings across the the hairs across the string. Oh, absolutely. I yeah. want to hear the player's breath. Absolutely. I want, like that's where I get chills. You know. Yeah, me too. Me I want too. it right in my face. And that's that's totally been a. Uh, uh, I guess to be specific about something we were talking about earlier, that that was an element of record production that I felt like has concretely helped make me a better composer. Yeah, was sp- specifically thinking about what are these what are these ways that uh, like like production and music engineering tactics can bring out the shit that I like best about chamber music. Yeah, right, and that's exactly what you're talking about in a way. It's like the the noise of the instrument as opposed to just its pitch content. Mm-hmm. Uh, the different ways that the pitch content will refract, mm-hmm. right? Which depending on if you're just sitting in a traditional hall or you're just listening with one microphone, you're going to get one particular vantage point. But of course, like the frequencies coming out of a cello are so variegated, so wide, and so complex. There's like a really elaborate amount of of data and, and vibes that are being thrown out of that instrument, mm-hmm. right? And so making decisions like how how do you use like the electricity in a recording console on a series of microphones to parse out all of those kind of different ingredients, whether it's like timbre of bow hair, resonance in the wood, overtones that are five feet away versus 15 feet away. Mm-hmm. Uh, how does like the reverb play into it? How does like the physical body of the performer squeak through now and then? And all of a sudden you've got like six different production elements around one instrument right that become you know not only just like elements of timbre to play with in a mix but uh i don't know real musical elements to play with yeah uh, in a mix and that it's so exciting it's really exciting it's really really exciting and you know we could talk forever and i don't want to about you know (laughs) declining declines in music business and and rate you know you know people don't buy music etc cetera, etc cetera. at the same time this is like the most exciting time ever to be making music and recording music and the tools that we have access to to really color you know it, it it is it's if you are a composer and an instrumentalist who knows how to get work done in the recording studio mm. you just have like so much more in your palette mm. to express the ideas that you want to express yeah i think so and i think that is a really extremely exciting time for that because it is uh probably more accessible too than it's ever been before yeah uh, just just from just literally from like a financial standpoint yeah, yeah you know 50 years ago you needed a fucking record deal with columbia records to get into a studio yeah that, that's it yeah yeah, right? yeah and it's like now all right you can save up for a little bit get a little pro tools rig get some pre's get some mics a couple nice plugins you know what i'm saying get some plugins there you go and there's like it's a hell of a lot to be said for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think especially with uh that kind of material getting into the getting into the right hands, it's super liberating and super yeah. exciting. You know what I mean? Um It's a good time to be a musician. It is. Yeah. Ultimately it is a good time to be a musician. And I think like Yeah, I'm 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 really happy about it. It's it's also like fuck, it's hard as hell to like keep it going mm-hmm. as you're living but i you know i'm glad i'm not doing anything else <laughs> shit <laughs> right on man you know? thanks for coming over man thank you jeremiah it's great a good talk hell yeah all right that was my conversation with patrick higgins 
I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Um, I did. I think Patrick's a good dude. He's fucking funny, and um, I enjoyed that talk a lot. If you want to find out more about Patrick, go to patrickhigginsmusic.com. There's a lot to check out, and it's all pretty spectacular. patrickhigginsmusic.com. Rate and review the podcast, man. Do it in iTunes. Click on it. Say, hey, this fucking show is great, and uh, I recommend it. Or don't. I don't know, man. Um, That's it. Hope you guys are all doing well. Talk to you next week. Bye.